Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, gang, it is completely natural, I assure you, when dealing with anxiety, depression, anger, shame, or any other unpleasant emotion, to just want it to go away. But my guest today says that is a case of you having dead people's goals. You may not feel anything when you're dead, but when you're alive, she says, discomfort is the price of admission. So given those hard truths, how are we going to handle our stuff, especially in times of tumult? like right now. How are you going to handle it? Denial, compartmentalization, self-medication? Susan David's answer is something called emotional agility. Susan David, PhD, is a psychologist at Harvard Medical School and author of a book called Emotional Agility. Her TED Talk on the subject has been viewed more than 8 million times. In this conversation, we talk about her definition of emotional agility, the four skills of emotional agility, why she says our emotions are data- not directives, how to move skillfully through a world that, as she says, conspires against us seeing ourselves, how to avoid what she calls emotional fusion, the power of tiny tweaks, and emotional granularity, what it is, why it matters, and how to practice it. Close listeners will recall that we talked to Brene Brown about this very subject recently. Brene gives a lot of credit in her work to Susan David. Heads up that we're dedicating this whole week on the show to helping you not be owned by your emotions. Coming up on Wednesday, my friend Danny Goleman, author of the iconic bestseller, Emotional Intelligence. But first, some uh, BSP, blatant self-promotion. Just to say real quick, don't forget to check out danharris.com, my new website where you can sign up for my newsletter, which I haven't been promoting that hard because we've been uh, honing it in the background, but um, now I really feel good about it. And uh, it's a place where I sum up the key learnings for me from the week's episodes and also make a bunch of cultural recommendations, whatever books and TV shows and movies I'm enjoying right now. Go check it out, danharris.com. We also have a new merch store where you can buy 10% happier gear and also uh, some gear festooned with my profanity lace slogans, danharris.com. Meanwhile, over on the 10% Happier app, from Monday, May 13th to Sunday, May 19th, we're going to be celebrating World Meditation Week with a whole series of free meditations available right there on the app. Every day, something new and unique designed to help beginners and seasoned meditators. And because we're so excited about it, we're going to be offering 40% off the subscription price until the end of May. Head over to 10percent.com slash 40. That's 10% spelled out, dot com slash 40 to get started. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. Dr. Susan David, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be with you today. Likewise. Well, let's start here. What is emotional agility? 
Emotional agility at its core is about being healthy with ourselves. It's about seeing ourselves, our difficult experiences, our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories in ways that are compassionate, but still allow us to come to the world in action and in values. So emotional agility in a deeper level is really the recognition that as human beings, we have every day difficult thoughts, thoughts about whether I'm good enough or whether we can cope. We have emotions, experiences like stress or disappointment or grief. And we have stories. Some of our stories were written on our mental chalkboards when we were five years old. Stories about who we are, whether we're creative, whether we're lovable. And these thoughts, emotions, and stories are normal. They're completely normal, and they are the way that we as human beings make sense of the world. But we also know that we can get stuck in those experiences. And so emotional agility is the ability to be with those experiences in ways that are curious and compassionate and courageous, and to still take values-connected steps so that we come to our lives in the way that we want and we are the people that we want to be. There's a lot to unpack there. But I guess my first response is it sounds like emotional agility either is or calls for a kind of fundamental foundational okayness. Yes, yes. When you ask that question, I'm reminded so much of this beautiful greeting that we have in South Africa. So you can hear from my accent while I live in Boston, I'm originally from South Africa. And there's a Zulu greeting that you hear every single day on the streets. And it's the greeting of Sawabona. And it literally means hello. But Sawabona, when you translate it in a literal form, means I see you. And by seeing you, I bring you into being. And I think it's so extraordinary because if we think about this notion of seeing, how do we see our children? How do we see our spouses? How do we see others? But then also, how do we see ourselves? And so when you speak to this fundamental notion of okayness, it's not an okayness in a pretense. It's an okayness in love and self-acceptance and an okayness in the recognition that as human beings, we have these experiences every day, experiences of grief and sadness and of pandemics and of fights and arguments and all the things that we have in life. And then there is also the essence of ourselves that has components of wisdom and values and intention, and that all of us have this okayness in that we have the capacity to bring those parts of ourselves forward. So what is the connection between the okayness with all of your own chaos and cacophony internally and literally seeing somebody else and bringing them into being? Well, at a fundamental level, we can't really see other people if we cannot see ourselves. And we know we see in the world that internal pain always comes out. Internal pain comes out in the way we interact with our children, in the way we love, in the way we lead, in the state of the world. And so if we are unable to see ourselves effectively, if we engage with ourselves in a way that is maybe more about avoidance or denial and unwillingness to go to the difficult places in ourselves, then we don't actually develop the skills within ourselves to be in the world as it is, which is that the world also asks that we go to difficult places with others, that we are able to be compassionate with others, that we are able to see others. And so a really important part of emotional agility is the recognition that if we are turning against the self, then that internal pain doesn't go away. That internal pain often comes out in the way we treat the world and the earth and the connections that we have. You use these words in your phenomenally popular TED Talk. You say how we deal with our inner world drives everything. Yeah, how we deal with our inner world drives everything. It, it drives how we love how we live, it drives how we parent, it drives how we lead, and it drives how we interact beyond ourselves with our communities at large. And so it's interesting, Dan, because I think that when we think about emotional skills, often we think about emotional skills in the social context. 
How do we have effective conversations? How do we have difficult conversations? But in truth, the most important conversations we will ever have are the ones we have with ourselves. And if we can have those conversations in ways that are curious and compassionate and courageous, then we become better equipped at having the conversations that the world needs us to have. Right. We're in a constant exchange with the world. We may feel like we're isolated, egos navigating a hostile world. But just to fall back on ridiculous cliches here, not ridiculous, but cliche nonetheless, we're stardust, right? I think that was Joni Mitchell who said that. We uh, love, love Joni. Love me Joni Mitchell. <laughs> yeah. My point is that it's hard to talk about this without lapsing into cliche, but we are part of the universe and we're always in exchange with it, even though that's both obvious and often overlooked. If you don't deal with your own stuff, it's going to play out in your relationships with other people. Correct. Our internal pain always comes out. And to move from abstract into practicality, I think so much of experiences that I had when I was younger. I grew up as a white South African in apartheid South Africa. And I was growing up in a community that was committed to denial, committed to not seeing. Because it's denial that makes 50 years of racist legislation possible while people convince themselves that they are doing nothing wrong. And so there we have a culture where there was denial going on, but it wasn't just denial of what was in front of us. It was also denial of the emotions that were coming up for people, the dissonance, the experiences. So I think we see this. We see the recognition that if we are unable to develop the skills that help us to be in the world, the world as it is, which is a world in which there is difficulty and pain, then we are unable to actually broker a more effective world. And I think this becomes profoundly important because I've never met a parent who says, I want to be a distant parent. I've never met a leader who says, I want to go to work today and be a complete idiot. But what happens is people are stressed or people go to work and they feel undermined and there's all of these emotions that come up for them. And when we are not able to deal with those emotions effectively, then what do we do? We take our cell phone to the dinner table and we are distant or we shut people down or we fail to have the kind of conversations that we need to have or we fail to lead in ways that actually match our intention. So, yeah, I mean, the most important work that we can do, not in a navel-gazing way, in an effective emotion processing way, is the internal work, which is that every day life is saying, who do you want to be today? Even in the midst of your challenge, even in the midst of your heartache, who do you want to be? And we answer that question by how we deal with all of the stuff that is inside of us. The other thing that I would say, Dan, is when you talk about this idea of, you know, something that can sometimes feel cliched in a sense, we can also really examine some of the narratives that we have in our society about emotions. And some of these narratives are things like, firstly, that emotions are bad, that some emotions are good and some emotions are bad. So we hear people say things like, well, just be happy, just be positive or good vibes only. And it feels innocuous on the surface, but when people say those kind of things, really, what are they saying? They are saying, my comfort is more important than your reality. There's no space for your pain here. And what does this lead to when we have a narrative that says only so-called positive emotions matter? It leads to situations where our child comes home from school and says, mommy, no one would play with me today. And we feel uncomfortable at our child's pain and we want our child to be happy. And so we jump in and we say things like, don't worry, I'll play with you. We paper over discomfort. And when we paper over discomfort, we don't teach our children the skills of seeing themselves, of seeing their difficult emotions, and of navigating those effectively and in values concordant ways. This is an error I have made many times throughout my life, not just as a parent, but also just as a human, that you, somebody talks to you about something that's going wrong for them, and you immediately run into reassurance mode as opposed to, as Brene Brown says, sitting in the dark with them. 
Yes, because we have this idea that wellness and well-being is about chasing the light, seeking the solution. And I think what we forget is, again, this power of this sabobona, which is either when you're in your own dark tunnel or when you're in the tunnel with another person. You don't need to just push that person towards the light. What you can help them to do is to see better in the dark. When I say see better in the dark, I don't mean by pushing aside or by forced false positivity. I mean by holding space, by holding hands, by asking questions, by being there. There's so much that we can do in the dark. But again, we live in a culture that says things like, well, if you feel difficult emotions, those emotions are bad. And truthfully, I mean, when we look at the literature in psychology, what do we call difficult emotions? We call them negative emotions. And so there is this idea that we have these negative emotions and we have these positive emotions and that actually normal, natural human experiences, the essence of what makes us human is either good or bad, positive or negative. And what that foundational idea does is it leads us into situations of discomfort with difficult emotions where we either push them aside, we suppress them, we get stuck in them, we haven't developed the skills that are actually needed to be in the world as it is, which is a world in which beauty and fragility hold hands and in which joy and grief hold hands. We're going to talk in detail about how one develops emotional agility, but you brought up your own personal biography of a few moments ago and talked about growing up in apartheid South Africa. There's another piece of the story, though, that relates to the subject of emotional agility and may, in fact, represent the roots of your interest in the subject, which is, if I'm recalling correctly here, the death of your father at a reasonably young age for you and some of the emotional fallout in your own life. Can you just tell that story a little bit? if you're okay with it? Yes, absolutely. So when I was 15 years old, my father, who was 42 at the time, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And my father was brought home to die in our house. And I recall, Dan, one Friday morning, my mother coming to me and saying to me to go and say goodbye to my father. And so I had this backpack and I put the backpack down and I walked through the passage to where my father is in his room. And I open the door and I walk into the room and my father's lying in his bed and his eyes are closed but then I knew that he knew that I was there because in his presence, in my father's presence, I had always felt seen. I'd always felt a sawobona from this person in my life, from my father. And I kissed him goodbye. I told him I loved him. And I then went off to school. And from there, I had an experience that I think so many of us have had, especially in the last couple of years, which is that the world feels like it's falling apart around us. We're in the shadow of illness and death and there's all of this stuff going on. And you can't but go onto social media and see people saying things like, well, look for the silver lining. If you, you don't use your time in quarantine to perfect sourdough bread baking or to dust off your screenplay, then there's something wrong with you. You know, and, and don't get me wrong, if you like use time during COVID or when you were behind closed doors to perfect your knowledge of 20th century Scandinavian cinema, like all power to you, no, you know, nothing wrong with that. But we seem to live in a world that really conspires against us seeing ourselves, that has these notions of silver linings and, again, positive emotions and negative emotions and just be positive and positive vibes only. And I had this extraordinary experience of going to school. And that day I'm drifting from science to history, to math, to biology. And my father slips from the world. And I come home from school that day. My father has died. And on the Monday, my mom, she's got three children and she wants to keep things normal. She sends us back to school and I go to school on the Monday and there is a studious refusal to use the word father by my peers because everyone feels that it's going to make me uncomfortable. So I now have this experience of 
feeling like I have had my world ripped away from me and no one wants to talk about it. No one wants to use the word father. No one wants to say, how was your weekend? Because it feels too much. So I go from like the May to July, September, November, and I'm going about with my usual smile. And people say to me, how are you doing? And I shrug and I say, I'm okay. And like all of us, we become the masters of being okay. But Dan, in truth, maybe this connects a little bit with your experience in your own life when you were in the midst of anxiety and panic and these questions of what do we turn towards and what do we turn away from? And I was saying I was okay, but my heart was breaking. And as this young girl, I'm 15 years old, I start to deal with that pain by binging and purging, like so many young girls do, refusing to accept the full weight of my grief. And no one knows. And in a world that seems to value relentless positivity, it seems like no one wants to know. But one day I go to class and I have this extraordinary teacher And she hands out these blank notebooks and then she says to the class, but it feels like she's saying it to me. She says, write, tell the truth, write like no one is reading. And so I start this extraordinary correspondence with this teacher where every day I write about my pain and my fear, my sadness, my grief, my regret, my joy, my all of these experiences. And this teacher writes back to me in the silent correspondence that goes on for many months. She writes back in pencil. And I actually, a couple of years later, said to her, why did you write back to me in pencil? Barely legible pencil. And she said to me, Susie, I wrote back in pencil because it was your story. I was witness to your story, but ultimately it was your story. So how does this relate to my career? How does this relate to the question that you're asking, which is how did I start becoming interested in these ideas? I I became fascinated with, on the one hand, a world that tells us to just be positive and to unsee ourselves and the impact that that was having on me psychologically and in terms of my mental health and well-being over time. And then on the other hand, this invitation brokered through this teacher, to see myself, to show up to myself with acceptance, to not see these emotions as good or bad, but to rather try and be compassionate with them, to be with them with acceptance, to sense make out of them. And what I started to recognize is that this narrative that was being fed about positivity and being okay and silver linings was a fake narrative. And it was contributing to lower levels of resilience and lower levels of well-being. And on the other hand, the difficult work of showing up actually seemed to support resilience and support well-being. And so this was the revolution for me. It was like so many people who are listening to this podcast today. The power is often not in the big movements. The power is often in the small movements, the small revolutions within inside of ourselves, the small conversations that we have with ourselves, the small conversations with others. And for me, it was this recognition that there is this narrative that undermines resilience and there is a counter-narrative that is less popular that supports resilience. And so I became an emotions researcher. I started to look into emotions, emotion regulation, emotional health, well-being, what is authentic happiness, and emotional agility. Appreciate that background. It's really helpful and illustrative, especially as we're going to dive into the how of all of this. Just a point of interest and maybe clarification, I don't know. I certainly don't think you're wrong that there is a narrative in the culture of positivity. We've seen the law of attraction and the power of positive (laughs) thinking, which is complete nonsense and whatever. I've been on my high horse on that for a long time, so I'll keep it short. But there is simultaneously plenty of negativity or, you know, there's emo music where people are talking about how hard life is and which, by the way, I'm cool with that. But then there's also straight up negativity on one need look no further than Twitter. So how dominant is the positivity narrative, really? Well, I think that both of these narratives are dominant in different ways. So if we look, for instance, at a lot of social media, there is a dominant narrative around 
positivity around don't be so angry. And then there is a counter narrative, which is a narrative of everything is terrible, everything is traumatic, everything is difficult. And I think this exactly is where what you speak to is so important in the context of emotional agility, which is on the one hand, what we do is we have these difficult emotions and we might push them aside in the service of forced positivity, what I call bottling, bottling our difficult emotions. On the other hand, what we might do is we might get stuck in our difficult emotions. We brood on them, we get victimized by our newsfeed, we get hooked on being right, we get stuck in our difficult emotions. We start treating these emotions as fact and they start to own us rather than us owning them. And so these are the skills of emotional agility, the skills of emotional agility, and we'll go into them in, in practice, but the skills of emotional agility are recognizing that emotions aren't good or bad. Emotions are data. Emotions signpost the things that we care about. If you feel rage when you watch the news, that rage might be signposting that you value equity. But if you feel grief, grief holds hands with love and grief might be signposting the need to connect with the memories that you had of that person. Our emotions are data, but our emotions aren't directives. Just because I feel sad doesn't mean that my sadness defines me. And so we have this truly remarkable situation where for decades, for hundreds of years, mathematics and strategy and logic have been taught in our schools. They have been lauded in our organizations as the most important skills. And the tragedy is that we are not taught the capacity to experience our emotions in healthy ways, which is that they are data, but they are not directives. So an example, Dan, is I can show up to my son's frustration with his baby sister. He's more introverted and she's on the extreme of extroversion. I can show up to his frustration. I can sawabona him. I can love him and I can see his experience so I'm showing up to that experience with acceptance and with openness, but it doesn't mean that I'm endorsing his idea that he gets to give her away to the first stranger he sees in a shopping mall. You know, we own our emotions. They don't own us. And there are these essential skills that help us to develop these capacities. Coming up, the four skills of emotional agility and some extremely practical advice about how to practice emotional granularity after this. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. 
For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good-looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. So let's talk about the four key concepts within emotional agility. You just mentioned the first one, which is showing up. Yes. So the first is the showing up to difficult emotions in self and others with a level of acceptance. And what's really important here is acceptance isn't passive resignation to the point that you made earlier. It's not a despondency. It's not a sense of like, oh my goodness, this is terrible. There's nothing I can do about it. It's rather... This idea that we end the struggle within ourselves by dropping the rope. We move away from thinking I should or shouldn't feel this thing. I'm allowed to or I'm not allowed to. Or my team is allowed to or not allowed to feel this thing. Instead, what we do is we drop the rope. We recognize that this is what is in front of me. So acceptance is showing up to what is by stopping the hustle. Dan, you spoke about earlier, you know, how pervasive is this positivity idea. And sometimes positivity sounds innocuous on the surface, but it is actually an avoidant coping strategy. In the framing of my English teacher, if I said to people, think about the last couple of years and take out an imaginary piece of paper and write on that piece of paper, write what you're feeling, tell the truth, write like no one is reading. So you're listening to this podcast right now and you've got this imaginary piece of paper in front of you, what would your emotion word be on it? Would you write loneliness or grief, sadness, joy, hope, anxiety, loss, disappointment, unsupported? Like, what would it be that you would write? Now, in so many listeners' minds, in the narrative of forced positivity, but dressed up in rainbows and sparkles, you would imagine that what I'm going to now do is say, turn your piece of paper over and write what you're grateful for. Because that is, that is so often what people are asked to do, turn the piece of paper over and write what you're grateful for. But no, what emotional agility asks you to do is turn the piece of paper over and ask yourself, what is that emotion signal about your values and your needs. Because loneliness might signpost that you can be busy in meeting after meeting, Zoom call after Zoom call, but that you are craving greater levels of intimacy and connection. Um, boredom. You can be bored and busy. And boredom might be signposting that you need more learning and growth in your life. That might signal a greater level of depth and learning about your children, your partner, or in the workplace, but that that's something that's important to you. And so the first aspect of emotional agility is this acceptance of tell the truth, write like no one is reading. And it's an acceptance that is born of dropping the rope, of trying to force gratitude or positivity. But it's also, Dan, I think, it's an acceptance that comes with it, something that I think is really important, which is, you know, you speak about it a lot on this podcast, which is self-compassion, that it's hard to human. It's hard to be in a world that is changing. And I, I often think of this beautiful Heraclitus philosopher, the Greek philosopher, who said, you can never step into the same river twice. Because as a human being, the world is changing and we are changing and that makes it hard. And so we need to be compassionate with those difficult experiences. So that's showing up. I can share more about other strategies as well if that's helpful. I want to go through each of them in detail, but just a question on the foregoing. Because in my mind, there's a difference between relentless, forced positivity and gratitude. I suspect we agree here, but yes. I just want to... I'll allow you to clarify for listeners. I think there's a lot of benefit to gratitude and there seems to be a lot of data behind it or assuming what you're saying is forcing it in the face of a difficult emotion can be a way to not look at the difficult emotion. 
Correct. So yes, I'm not anti-happiness. I'm not anti-positivity. I, I literally wrote a 90-chapter handbook called the Oxford Handbook of Happiness. I'm not like anti-happiness. I love being happy. I'm not anti-gratitude. There's a huge amount of data showing that these emotions like joy and awe and transcendence and gratitude are hugely powerful in our lives. So what is the distinction? The distinction is forced, false. Forced, false positivity. Forced, false gratitude. When we're starting to do this, we are starting to engage in one of the most profound forms of unseeing, of unseeing of ourselves, of unseeing of others. When we look at our difficult emotions or we're feeling stuck at work or we're struggling in a relationship and we show up to them and we start trying to see them and understand them and work through them using these tools of emotional agility, we very often get to a place of authentic happiness and of authentic gratitude. But it's born not of denial, it's born of seeing. Well said. So the second of the four key concepts is stepping out. So the first part of emotional agility is this ability to be accepting and with compassion. A second part of emotional agility is connecting with that idea that I spoke about earlier, which is that we own our emotions. They don't own us. We know that it's very difficult to read the instructions when we're stuck inside the bottle. When we're stuck inside feeling frustrated or angry or sad or whatever the experience is, it's very difficult to read the instructions. And of course, you speak so much about mindfulness and mindfulness is one way that we can step out. We're starting to notice our thoughts, our emotions and our stories for what they are. They are thoughts, emotions, and stories. So if we just think about um, the language that we use when we are in struggle, we'll say something like, I am sad. It's such a commonplace term. I'm sad. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. We use this with our emotions, but we might also use it with our stories. We might say, I'm being undermined. I'm undermined. Now, when we use this language, what are we saying? We are literally saying, I am, I am all of me. 100% of me is defined by sad. There's no space for wisdom. There's no space for intention or values or any other aspect of ourselves. And so it becomes very difficult to create the space that allows us to move forward in our lives because we are literally in psychological terms, we call this fusion. We've become fused with the difficult emotion. And so when we start noticing our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories for what they are, which is they are thoughts, emotions, and stories, we can start saying, I'm noticing that I'm feeling sad. I'm noticing that that is my story that I'm being undermined. I'm noticing that's my I'm not good enough story. And when we start just literally noticing our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories for what they are, we start creating this space so that we're now stepping outside the bottle. And Dan, the way that I think of this is, you know, when you say, I am sad, it's almost like there's a cloud in the sky and you have become the cloud. You are the sad cloud. When you say, I'm noticing that I'm feeling sad, I'm noticing that I'm feeling angry, what you are doing is you are recognizing that you are not the cloud, that you are the sky. We are capacious and beautiful and wise and able enough to experience all of it, all of our difficult emotions and to still choose how we want to move forward. So noticing is another strategy that's very powerful. There's one other that I can share with you, Dan, which is that words matter. And so in my work, very often people will say things like, I'm stressed. You know, I'm stressed is so commonplace. We hear it every day in every organization, in every household. People say, I'm stressed, or it might be, I'm busy. But if we think about it, there is a world of difference between stress and disappointment, stress and 
feeling unsupported, stress and exhaustion, stress and that knowing, knowing feeling that you're in the wrong job or the wrong career or that the project isn't working out. So when we label our emotions using very big umbrella terms, I'm stressed, your body and your psychology literally don't know how to make sense of that experience. So a very powerful way of starting to create space between us and our difficult emotions or to defuse from our difficult emotions is to ask yourself, what are two other options? You know, I'm saying that I'm experiencing stress, but what else might I be feeling? And again, I invite every person who's listening to ask themselves, okay, well, what is the emotion word that you default to? And then what are two other options? And you can start seeing that if you move from something like, I am stressed, to I'm feeling unsupported, already what that starts to do is it starts to help you to understand the cause of the emotion and also what you need to do in relation to the emotion. So you're starting to find your way through the tunnel through effective processing. And this is really powerful. I don't want to overstate the power, but I'm going to say that I believe that this is an emotional superpower. We call this emotion granularity. We know that children as young as two and three years old who start being able to discern the difference between mad versus sad versus need mommy that those children who have a better capacity to label their emotions more effectively have in longitudinal studies higher levels of well-being, higher levels of self-regulation, higher capacity to delay gratification, higher ability to move towards their goals. It's profoundly, profoundly important. And then just one quick example of that. I was working with a client once it was actually in a consulting context. And this client, his default emotion, he kept on saying that everyone was angry. I'm angry. I'm angry. My team's angry. My wife's angry. Everyone was angry. That was the default umbrella term. And I started saying to him, what are two other options? Like, what else could you be feeling? And he started to say, well, actually, I'm scared. I'm fearful of the fact that I'm in a new role and that things might not work out in the way that I want. And maybe the team is actually not angry. Maybe the team's mistrusting. Now, you can see if you go into a conversation with I'm angry and the team's angry, it's a very different conversation than if you go in and you are, I am scared and the team is looking for opportunities to trust. And then a couple of months later, I happened to go out with this client and his wife was at the dinner and she said to me, it's such a subtle skill, but it completely changed the relationship because he would come home from work and he would say, you're angry. And she would be, I'm not angry, I'm tired, or I need support, or I just need love, I just need a hug. And as soon as they started to engage in a conversation that was about specificity in their emotional experience of each other, what they also started to do was to broker a level of curiosity and depth and acceptance. I'm going to read you back to you. You say that when we label emotions accurately, we are more able to discern the precise cause and our brain's readiness potential is activated, allowing us to read the data of our emotions and take the proper next steps. Yes. So step three here, or concept three of emotional agility is walking your why. What does that mean? Well, so much, Dan, of what I've spoken to is this idea that we often get fused with our difficult thoughts, emotions, and stories, and that we need to create space. It's not his words, but it's that sentiment that's often attributed to Viktor Frankl, that idea of between stimulus and response, there is a space, and in that space is our power to choose. And it's in that choice that lies our growth and our freedom. I think that 
sentiment becomes really powerful because, of course, when we're trying to process an experience or process something that feels difficult, or when we're trying to move from fusion to defusion, the obvious question becomes, well, what are we putting in the space? Are we simply so much in our heads that we aren't living our lives? Are we so focused on the self that we aren't seeing what's in front of us? And so the third component of emotional agility is really this recognition that in that space is our values, is who we want to be, this capacity that we all of us have to be wise. And I don't mean that in an abstract way. I mean that even in the most tangible way. You know, do we bring our cell phones to the table and forgo precious time with our children? Do we bypass our spouse in the kitchen, you know, them doing their thing and we doing our thing and like not actually connect with those people in our lives? And so the third component of emotional agility is this aspect of walking your why. This really important recognition that in the same way as we can pick up viruses, human beings are subject to what is called emotion contagion. And I know this is, again, something that you've touched on previously. And emotion contagion is literally the idea that we pick up emotions and, in fact, behaviors from other people. And there's really fascinating research, for instance, that shows that if someone in our social network, we do not even need to know the person. If they start engaging in behaviors that are poor health behaviors, or if that person in our social network gets divorced, we are significantly more likely to engage in those behaviors or get divorced. What is happening here is we start in very subtle ways picking up behaviors that become normalized through what we see other people doing. And the most obvious is this. We might see everyone in our neighborhood driving a particular car and suddenly we're like, hmm, that's a nice car. I want that car. We start doing this. And we know even if you're sitting on an airplane and your seat partner buys candy and you're trying to be more healthy in your choices, you do not even need to know that seat partner if they buy candy, your likelihood of buying candy increases 70%. So we pick up on the emotions and behaviors of other people without even knowing that we are doing this. And it becomes really important for us to ask ourselves, who is the core of me that wants to move forward in a particular way. And of course, the answer to that lies in thinking about our values and how we want to be in the world and how we want to come to the world. And Dan, I'll give you just one example, which is imagine you are someone who's grown up in a community where no one in your community has ever gone to college, but you fight and you strive and you make your way to college. And then as it happens, you fail a test or you hand in an assignment and you do poorly in that assignment. What likely happens in that environment is all of that narrative, all of those stories that have existed in your community in that moment of stress are likely to surface. Oh, maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe they were right all along. Our anxiety starts to take center stage. And so we know that in that moment, many, many of those students will actually drop out of college. Now, if you take these students and you ask them in the shortest of exercises to do what is called a values affirmation, and values affirmation is basically literally, you know, people listening, I invite you to do this. It's so powerful. Take out a piece of paper and for 10 minutes, just write about who you want to be. Like, what are your values? What is your purpose? Whether that applies to how you want to parent or how you want to lead or how you want to shape your community. And literally 
those 10 minutes spent writing about what is important to you, your values, when these kids do it as they're going into college, that 10-minute exercise protects them three years down the track from dropping out. Because what starts to happen is when we start to affirm our core, our intentions, our values, who we want to be, and we bring it more front and center, we are less likely to become victim to this social contagion that we see around us. We are more likely to have a healthy distance between the emotions that are swirling around us and then that centeredness of who we want to be in this world. So that's walk your why, this ability to connect with your own heartbeat. And it's a heartbeat that is often something that we don't connect with in the busyness and the noise that invites us to turn away. After the break, the fourth and final skill of emotional agility. And Susan explains the power of so-called tiny tweaks. Keep it here. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating, and it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15-20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. How do we figure out what our core is, what our values are, what we care most about? What's the process? Well, there are a couple of really important questions that we can ask ourselves, and they're very simple questions. The first is when we look back on our day and we say to ourselves, what did I do today that was worthwhile? What did I do that was worthwhile? And note, I'm not asking, what did I do that made me happy? Or what did I do that was fun? What did I do that was worthwhile? Sometimes people say things to me like, I want the stress, I want the disappointment, I want those things to go away. And I'm like, I get it, but you know, those are dead people's goals. Dead people never get disappointed. Dead people never have their hearts broken. Discomfort, not discomfort just for the sake of it, discomfort because it feels worthy. Discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. We don't get to raise a family or leave the world a better place or have a a career that feels like it's true to the career that we want without stress and discomfort. And so this is why this worthwhile isn't just about fun. It's often about moments when we've engaged in discomfort. So asking ourselves, like, what did I do today that was worthwhile? That's one moment. Another way that we can start discerning what our values are is by asking ourselves if this was 
my last day. If this was my last day, what would I want my last day to be? And often in those moments, you'll recognize that there's values there. Another is, and this is why this process of emotional agility is so important in its focus around not pushing aside difficult emotions, because another way we start discerning our values is by turning over the piece of paper, turning over the piece of paper where we've got a difficult emotion on the one side and on the other side, What is that difficult emotion signposting? If I think about guilt as a parent, if I think about guilt, and I can get so wrapped up in guilt, but if I turn the piece of paper over, what is the guilt signposting? The guilt is signposting that I value presence and connectedness with my children and that I want more of that. And so one of the ways we can discern our values is by turning the piece of paper over and saying, if my emotions are data and if my emotions signpost my needs and my values, what is this emotion signposting? And for those of you listening who work with teams, a team member who puts their hand up and who says, I'm worried. I'm worried about the change. You know, what do we do? We often default to saying, oh, that person's just negative. We often default to saying, oh, you're either on the bus or you're off the bus. We put people in these positive negative boxes and we push out psychological safety. But if we instead recognize the team member who says, I'm worried about the change, what is the value that the team member is holding? The value might be that the team member cares about the client or that the team member actually cares about the outcome here. So this is really profoundly important and liberating. Let's go on to the fourth of your concepts. It's called moving on. What does that mean? Well, again, I think this idea of emotions can often feel like it's very internally focused. And and yet emotional health is actually moving out of your head and into your life. It's moving towards those values. And so moving on is the notion that values are not these things that you just write in a book or that are on walls in businesses. Values are qualities of action. Values are not these things. They often feel very abstract and people roll their eyes and they're like, oh my goodness, we've got values in our organization and we're told that we need to believe in these values. And it's like, they feel very abstract and there's a level of kind of cynicism that's often associated with values. But values are qualities of action. Values are the idea in front of us, which is I value my health and there is an apple and there is a piece of chocolate and that there is a choice point that I have in front of me here. And the choice point is, do I move towards my values or do I move away from my values? And if we think about our values, there are so many experiences that we have literally hundreds every day, which represent choice points. I gave some examples already. Do I bring my cell phone to the table or do I leave it in a drawer? Do I reach out for a hug to my loved one or do I keep that wall up where it's been for the past couple of months? Do I move towards the conversation that I know that I need to have or do I move away from it? And so moving on is the idea that we can take our values and use those values as a lens. And let me give an example of a difficult conversation. If we succumb to our difficult emotions, we might avoid a difficult conversation. And yet, when we think about avoidance and we think about the value that is being signposted, it might be, I'm avoiding the difficult emotion because I'm worried about fairness. Having a conversation that's fair or it feels unfair to have this conversation, fairness feels important. So you can start asking yourself, okay, so if fairness is important, how fair is it if I don't have this conversation? How fair is it to myself? How fair is it to this individual? How fair is it if I'm in an organization? How fair is it to the organization? What does a fair conversation look like? How do I have a fair conversation? So we can start using our values as a lens in the way we interact in the way we connect with our children and the people who are important in our lives. And what becomes also really important here is often when we think about values and we think about 
you know, moving towards our values, it, it feels like, oh, well, we've got to make huge changes. But in truth, Dan, we know that the most important changes that we can thread in our lives as people are actually not about doing dramatic things. It's not about leaving. It's not about selling up and going and living on a wine farm in France in order to reconnect with ourselves. It's not about doing things that are dramatic. There's a huge, huge amount of research in psychology that shows that what I call in emotional agility, I call these tiny tweaks. Tiny tweaks are these small moments that matter and that bring us towards the things that matter in our lives. The idea being here that if you've ever sailed, you know, we know that we can move. We can move two degrees as we're sailing and another two degrees and another two degrees. And we land up in a completely, completely different part of the bay. And the same is true when we think about our values, which is the moment where instead of shutting down, I connect with my spouse when they come home from work and I put my arms around them and I genuinely ask them how their day was. And I do that today and I do it tomorrow and I do it the next day and it's a tiny 2%. There is a different relationship that is crafted than if I didn't do that 2%. And so moving on is about small moments that take us towards our values as opposed to away from our values. Toward the end of the book, there's a lengthy discussion of realness or being real. What do you mean by realness? For so many people listening, you will recall the beautiful Velveteen Rabbit, that beautiful book, The Velveteen Rabbit. And We have this little rabbit who fears that they're not like the other toys because they aren't as shiny, they aren't as new. And the horse describes how when you are loved, when you are seen, and now I'm paraphrasing using emotional agility language, when you are loved, when you are seen, when you show up to yourself, when you show up to others, you become real. And the velveteen rabbit says, does it hurt? Does it hurt being real? And the answer is yes. A lot of what my work focuses on is the idea that life's beauty is inseparable from its fragility, that we are all young until we are not. Children are little and we we nag them or we feel exhausted. And then one day there's like silence where that child once was now making his or her way in the world. And there's this extraordinary fragility and beauty in the world. And that fragility and that beauty are what is real. It's the both. It's the bothness. Around the age of five, kids become aware of their own mortality. And I remember at that age becoming absolutely fearful that my parents were going to die. And this was 10 years before my dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And, you know, he was completely well. And I would find my way night after night after night after night. I would find my way in between my parents in their bed. And I would cry and I would say to my dad, Daddy, promise me you'll never die. Daddy, promise me you'll never die. And my dad was extraordinary because... He could have buffered me with forced false positivity. He could have said, you've got nothing to worry about. I'm going to be around forever. You know, let's read some bedtime stories. I'll do, you know, he could, have, he could have done what we do in our social media. He could have said things like, look for the silver lining. Could have done all of those things. But he didn't. He didn't. And I still remember to this day, he comforted me with soft pats and kisses, but he never lied. He said to me, Susie, we all die. It's normal to be scared. And what I understood by his realness, by his refusal to turn away from truth and his refusal to turn away from me, is he was saying to me that courage is not about pretending that everything's fine. It's also not about getting stuck in the negative. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is fear walking. 
Courage is fear walking. And so to answer the question about realness, it's about holding to bothness. It's about holding to the idea that we can be fearful on the one hand and hold courage on the other. Before I let you go, can you just plug any resources you've put out into the world that people who want to learn more from you could access? Yes. So if anyone wants to connect with me, you know, all of the Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, I try to really post these ideas in a way that feels thoughtful and connected. My TED Talk, my TED Talk on the gift and power of emotional courage, uh, my book, Emotional Agility. And then there's there's also just on my website that around 200,000 people have taken now and that a lot of people find really helpful, which is a free quiz that I've got. And it's a quiz that takes a couple of minutes. You get a free 10-page report. And one thing that people love about that is it starts to explore this idea of what your values are. Dr. Susan David, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks again to Susan David. Thank you very much as well to everybody who works so hard on this show. The team includes Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine David, Lauren Smith, Maria Wirtel, Samuel Johns, and Jen Poyant. And we get our audio engineering from the good folks over at Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you all on Wednesday for an episode with my man, Danny Goldman, author of Emotional Intelligence. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.